evening worship, we have been preaching through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I didn't want to exclude the whole church from that goodness, and so we're going to look at question 19 as our sermon this morning. Catechetical preaching is essentially doctrinal preaching. It takes a great doctrine from scripture and makes that the content of uh, the sermon. And so uh, question 17 introduces questions 18 and 19. So I took for our confession this morning question 17 and question 19. So church, I ask, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And then question 19, what is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Amen. You may be seated. Question 19 will serve as the structure for our meditation this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 3. To consider rightly the misery of the human condition, one must consider the garden. One must consider... The opening chapters of the world's history and how it went from blessedness to misery and how that happened. And so we take for our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 24. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes them then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And you can turn in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, we acknowledge that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We give you thanks that you have spoken and that the word you have spoken in the Lord Jesus Christ was not the word of judgment which should have fallen upon us, but a word of judgment which fell upon him that the word of blessing might fall to us. And it is in this blessing that you continue to build us up even now. And so we ask that as we consider what should have been our lot through and through, what should have been our portion through and through, apart from your grace and your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would humble us, that you would confirm the truth of your word unto our heart, that you would work by it a greater sense of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that he alone can bring, and his rule and his reign which brings joy and peace and the blessing of being included under this rule and reign. Attend your word by the gracious ministry and influence of the Holy Spirit. Be pleased to open the eyes of the blind and to strengthen the hearts and the minds of your people whose eyes you have opened by your great grace. We know you are pleased to do these things because your word tells us you are pleased to do these things. You know that we are to ask for these things because your word has instructed us to ask 
for these things. And so we ask, Father, that you would do them in accord with your word. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Oblonsky home was all confusion. I believe I've mentioned this novel before, Anna Karenina. If you haven't read it, at least you know how it opens by this point. I've referenced it enough times. You know that it opens basically with this line, the Oblonsky home was all confusion. And the opening pages of this book detail why the Oblonsky home was all confusion and what that confusion looked like on a practical level. The why is simple. Steva Oblonsky had been caught in adultery and with a French governess of his children, no less. How low, how base. He had been put out of his bedroom by his wife. Servants in his household had been quitting left and right. His wife was justifiably incensed and wanted nothing to do with him and had legal grounds for divorce. And while something of the dark and undoable reality of his situation was beginning to dawn on him as he awakes on a couch, he can't help but feel that he has been the one who was wronged. That somehow everyone else is to blame for failing to understand that he was really just doing that which was utterly understandable. Yes, the Oblonsky home is all confusion. The world is all confusion. You can look at that confusion from various angles, just like the Oblonsky home. There's the legal reality of Steve's guilt. His wife has justifiable grounds for divorce. There's the moral reality that Steva is growing more and more attracted to his infidelity. He's growing more and more attracted to his illicit lover. And the fact that his wife is angry with him is simply driving him farther away from her, though she is the wronged party. But there's also the relational reality. He has forfeited harmony with his wife and that chaos is now characterizing everything about his home. In the place of that former harmony, there is wrath, mistrust, and anger, justifiable on her part towards him and unjustified in his part towards the world. This is causing a household to deteriorate. Question 17, as we read this morning, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sets forth the heartbeat of confusion pulsing at the core of the world. Adam's sin has brought all mankind into a state of sin and misery. And then question 18 goes, to look at that pro goes on to look at that problem from one angle, the reality of sin, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate into which mankind fell. It consists in the guilt of criminals, and the moral corruption of being handed over to one's sin. But then question 19 swings and looks at it from another angle. Mankind, by their fall, has lost friendship with God, has lost harmony with God. 
And in the place of that harmony is now just wrath, a curse. And because of that curse, all of the miseries of this life, death, sickness, disasters, futility, vanity, a pulsating frustration that sits at the core of human being, and a fate worse than death which looms upon the horizon. All of it characterizes the human condition. And apart from God's grace extended in Jesus Christ, it would be the only thing that man knew. Yes, the world is all confusion due to sin. And I think that might be the first point to make. This is a pre-point. It's still a three-point sermon, but this is a pre-three-point point. point. (laughs) It's the first point to make. The question takes up the issue of misery, suffering, trouble, the shared human condition that everyone knows, the church and the world alike. And for the most part, the church and the world can agree. Human suffering is terrible. Misery, affliction is terrible. Wars, famines, diseases, death, sickness, broken relationships. It's all awful, and it generates an experience that is brutal beyond description. And the church and the world can both say, yes, it is brutal. Yes, it is miserable. But the church's testimony has to depart at this point. The church insists that misery is the result of sin. A human suffering is because human beings have defied their maker. Paul plainly declares it. The wages of sin is death. We need not insist that personal misery is directly due to personal sin, though sometimes it is. But we can insist unequivocally, without qualification, that misery in general, which includes personal misery, is due to sin in general, which includes personal sin. And this has generated the mess of the human condition. But this means that as long as there is sin, there will be misery. To want to remove misery without addressing the underlying reality of sin is a fool's errand. Now we can give thanks to God for his common grace that limits and lessens human misery. We can even labor aside non-believers to work to lessen human misery. But the plain testimony of the church is, if misery is going to be removed, well then sin needs to be removed. If misery is going to be adequately dealt with, then sin must be adequately dealt with. Everything else is just treating the symptoms. This morning we considered the misery of the human condition and the staggering truth of Scripture which sets forth the fact that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, man is alone, estranged, dying, and worse. Now this means for those who are in Jesus Christ, we consider this terrible state as what should have been ours through and through. As those who have received the grace and the mercy of God and thus 
have been spared the comprehensive horror set forth in the articulation of misery. And this serves to do what? To increase gratitude, joy, awe, and a sense of our absolute need for what God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who do not know Jesus Christ, consider your life. I do not know you, but I suspect you fall into one of two camps. You either have an intense sense that all is not well with your soul and all is not well with the world, or you feel yourself fine. But I'm here to tell you that the reasons you feel yourself fine are incredibly frail. If you were in the former camp, consider that the reason why all is not well with your soul, the reason why all is not well with the world is because of the truth that we are about to consider. If you were in the latter, consider that your security is a sandcastle. Your health, your wealth, your relations, all could be gone in an instant, in the blink of an eye. And then what? Where does that leave you? The plain testimony of Scripture is that you are in need of something more sure, more stable than what you can provide by the works of your hands. You are in need of what only the Lord Jesus Christ can provide. And the word that he gives us, which is a sure foundation in seasons of much and seasons of little. This morning we consider human misery. So consider first, misery is something lost. Second, misery is something dark and new. And third, misery is a little life with lots of death. First, something lost. What is the misery of our estate? By the fall, all mankind has lost communion with God. By the fall, mankind, human beings, have lost friendship with God. A relationship of harmony and peace and blessing has been lost. Have you ever lost someone? Maybe by death? Maybe through circumstances? Maybe through a falling out? We know what it means to lose someone, to lose the relationship that we enjoyed with that someone. And we know that it is some of the deepest pain that human beings can experience. By the fall, human beings have forfeited God and the relationship that they enjoyed with him. Look at Genesis 3 again. Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way 
to guard the way of the tree of life. Do you notice verse 22? Do you notice how it just falls off? It just stops. God stops mid-sentence. He begins to speak the terrible reality of what is unfolding, but then he comes up short before he gives it a full utterance. There is something solemn and unutterable about it. God doesn't even say it. It's almost like he can't even bring himself to say it. Now, you don't want to state that too intensely because we know the expulsion from the garden didn't take God by surprise. And we know that God is not subject to emotions as we are, meaning he's essentially a helpless victim of passions that rise up within him. Both of those things aren't true, but the impression here is plain that God watches what is happening and there is something unspeakably tragic about it. And it's not difficult to see why. Consider what had just been in the garden. Consider the relationship that had been lost. God had formed and fashioned the man and the woman for himself. And this was not a distant and impersonal formation. Breathing into his nostrils, forming him by the hands of God, as it were, from the dust of the ground, causing a sleep to fall over him and taking with that same hand a rib into which he made the woman. Personal, intimate, close, a fellowship from the very beginning, face to face. They had received gifts from him. It's all yours. They had received commissions from him, directly mouth to mouth. They walked with him in the garden as two friends walked about. They understood that this entire wonderful kingdom had been bestowed upon them directly from his benevolent hand. They knew God as maker. They knew him as friend. They knew him as fount of every blessing. They knew him as the one who was their enjoyment. And then the terrible non-utterance of verse 22. There's a scene in the movie, The Ten Commandments, the old one. Do you remember this movie? It used to air on TV around this time. (laughs) Is TV still a thing? I don't know. (laughs) There's a scene when Pharaoh expels Moses from his courts and he declares from his throne, I never want to hear the name Moses spoken again. And Moses is expelled. And he loses all of the favor of the court, all of the benefits of the court, all of the harmony that had been his via his standing in the court. We see man here expelled, and he's not expelled from the courts of a pagan king. He's expelled here from the court of the true and living God, an expulsion that was lost in its most profound sense. Because this forfeiture of communion was not just the loss of a relationship forged in blessing. It was the loss of life. For man's life comes in communing with God. I just finished the novel, Gone with the Wind. 
This is a spoiler alert. You've had a long time to read this novel. It's been around your whole life. Near the end, when Scarlett O'Hara loses Melanie Wilkes, the one who had been closest to her in many senses throughout the entire ordeal that she had undergone, she realized she wasn't just losing a friend. She was losing her strength. She was losing her shield. In truth, she was losing the source of her life. We know what it means to rely upon other people for strength, to draw from them encouragement, courage, a certain power. We were designed to rely upon one another to live. But in the truest sense, that reliance that we are to have upon one another is but a flicker of the absolute dependence that we were to have upon our maker, our God, from whom life itself comes as we commune with him. Consider Psalm 92, the rest of the psalm we began with this morning. In verses 12 through 15, it ends, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord he is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. It's a familiar image. You'll find it in Ezekiel 47. You'll find it in Zechariah 14. You'll find it in Revelation 22. That from God's presence flows the river of life. Issuing forth from the throne of God. And this is what Eden was. Marked by that arboreal image. The trees marked by those four rivers that nobody ever knows what to do with. Why talk about the rivers? Because these are rivers flowing from God's throne upon earth. And the human position in that paradise was one like a tree planted by a stream. What is a stream to a tree? It's life itself. Human beings expelled from this blessed presence, from this blessed stream are rootless trees. Uprooted and cast into a wilderness. Or severed branches tossed into a heap east of Eden. What are the cherubim? They're guardians of the threshold of the presence of God. The very presence which brings fullness of life, pleasures forevermore. In the loss of this communion, human beings forfeited the very source of life. Loss of communion as loss of friendship. Loss of communion as loss of life. But it's not just loss. It's the presence of something new and awful. Consider second that friendship and life are now replaced by wrath and curse. That's what the question goes on to say. Where does the misery consist? Not only in the loss of communion with God, but being under his wrath and curse. Mankind now looks heavenward and sees storm. Their whole life is lived beneath a fiery sky. And so what do they do? Well, the pagans devise songs and dances to placate or manipulate the storm. The modern mind simply looks at the earth and says, there is no sky, which is patently absurd. The plain testimony of scripture is, mankind has lost friendship with God. 
but there is still a terrible tie that binds. When Anna betrayed her husband for Vronsky, in one sense she did sever the bond of marriage, but in another sense she forged a new and terrible bond with her husband. When Steva took the governess in adultery, Dolly, his wife, did not just disappear. Both unfaithful parties now owed a debt to the wronged party, which forged them together in an unbreakable but terrible bond until that debt is discharged. Both became rightful objects of their spouse's just wrath. Both were tied to the wronged party by something new and something awful. And so it is for mankind towards God. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Paul in Ephesians 2.3, we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. An object of wrath by this new nature. Why? Because we have traded the true and living God for an imposter, as Anna traded her husband, as Steva traded his wife. We have communed with the God of this world, forsaking the true and living God. It's important to insist at this point that God is rightfully angry with human beings. God is just in his indignation towards sinful man. This is a difficult point, isn't it? It's passe, but I'm really not interested in that. I'm really more interested in the fact that it is difficult, and I understand why. Its difficulty emerges from a number of reasons. One, because speaking about the anger of God is hard, isn't it? Why is it hard to speak about the anger of God? Partly because we only know sinful anger. <laughs> we are wronged and immediately, even if there is a justifiable element to our indignation, immediately our sin gets cut with it. We have only the faintest notions of just indignation, of righteous wrath, of a holy anger. And so to speak of the anger of God is difficulty just because we simply don't know what it means to be righteously angry. It's helpful here to remark, as Thomas Watson has, saying God's wrath is not a passion as it is in us. It is an act of God's holy will whereby he abhors sin and decrees to punish it. Another reason that this topic is difficult, is that God continues to show great kindness to the whole world. So in one sense, his general goodness and the blessing that he indiscriminately distributes to the just and the unrighteous alike says, well, maybe God isn't angry with sinners. <laughs> but the plain testimony of Scripture is God's goodness is that good. That even as he holds sinners responsible for an unspeakably egregious act, even though they exist under his wrath, he continues to do his enemies good. This to the praise of his glory. But the last reason is, and this perhaps is the most pressing reason, 
We're not God. We only know this reality from our side. And quite frankly, we're remarkably sympathetic to our own cause against God. We think our sin incredibly reasonable and God rather unreasonable in the just judgment that he pronounces against sin. Anytime we're tempted to raise doubt over the fairness of God in punishing sin, we show where our true loyalty lies. It is with sinful man. It is against a holy God. We find Lucifer in paradise lost to be most reasonable and possibly even justified in his rebellion against the infinite one. And in this we betray how little we understand. For a king to allow a rebel kingdom, a kingdom which is bent on building a tower into heaven and overthrowing the true king, a kingdom which is bent on denying and defying the true and living God. For the true king to allow this rebel kingdom to exist is a remarkable act of patience and kindness. One which is intended to carve out an arena for redemption to go forth, but is not to be presumed upon. There is manifold evidence of our dreadful condition everywhere around us in this kingdom. And so we can consider last a little life and a lot of death. That's how the question closes. We are made liable to the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. Look back at Genesis 3 once more. Starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat breath, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. A little life everywhere encroached upon by death. Now, it would be impossible to enumerate the miseries of this life, but just look at the types of misery human suffering that are set forth in this passage. There's physical pain. I will increase your pain in bearing children. Talk to any woman who has born a child. Has it been a comfortable experience for you? What about the day of delivery? Was that a comfortable experience for you? Pain, life brought forth but attended with much pain. Pain attending work. By pain you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. And what are your hands going to bring forth? That which causes pain, thorns, thistles. Gone with the wind, everybody is reduced to working in the field, finding pain. 
intense pain, marking life with death. There's hostility with nature. Thorns and thistles brought forth. That pronouncement of blessing, be fruitful and multiply, that the Lord God pronounced upon all creation here is inverted darkly. It's going to bring forth, but it's going to be thorns and thistles and even enmity with the serpent. Yes, it's more going on there than simple hostility with the animal world, but it's not less than that. That there's this entire register of hostility within nature, not only in lions and wolves and bears and serpents, which would have been much more of a pressing threat to them than we feel it is to us, but also in storms, quakes, tornadoes, the sea, which swallowed ships, family never to be seen again. An entire register of hostility erupting in the face of man's rebellion. And then the conflict within relationships. Strife in the most intimate of human relations. Husband and wife, your desire is going to be for him. He's going to rule over you. Difficulty into the very heart of the home. And then in the next episode, brother rising up against brother. And if the most intimate of relations is marked by such hostility, that doesn't give much hope for the relationship with strangers, does it? If even wife and husband and brother are the object of malice, how am I going to treat the one that I don't know at all? Misery and death. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The ground over which man was supposed to rule on that last day is going to rise up like a monster to swallow you, me, as it accepts our bodies committed to the belly of an insatiable beast, for death now rules over this kingdom. This is human history. And thus human history marked by all of these things is in itself a sort of judgment. God giving men over to the desires of their hearts. Communion with a dark monstrosity. The preference for lie to truth. The preference for wandering east of Eden to the courts of the living and true God. And God says in a sense, fine, go. But that's not the judgment. Human history is a sort of judgment, but it's not the judgment. As the Lord Jesus Christ plainly teaches, there is a day of judgment coming. As terrible as all of this is, as difficult as all of this is, there is a fate worse than everything that has befallen the earth which awaits the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his servant Paul, teaches plainly in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when the Lord Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who believe. And then Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away unto eternal punishment. 
No one spoke more plainly about the terrible truth of everlasting perdition than the Lord Jesus Christ. His testimony is plain. All who come to him shall live. That's beautiful. His testimony is plain. All who refuse to come to him shall be left to stand upon their own merits. The son is going to come on that great day as a king. And he's going to say, I gave you the law. And by that law you shall be judged. Step forward, all who have done well. And no one will come forward. And they'll say, step forward, all who have violated the law. And all who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ will come forward. And he will say, guilty. And the sentence is eternal death. And it will be just. And it will be terrible. This is man's miserable estate apart from Jesus Christ. That's weighty. Can we grapple with weighty matters? Are things so superficial now that such a grave word is off-putting? I mean, it is a terrible truth. But it is truth. And the fact that it is truth necessitates that we grapple with it. How do we respond to it? If you do not know Christ, this is your condition, whether you know it or not. This is your fate, whether you know it or not. Consider your works. Consider your soul. Consider this world and consider that this is a true interpretation of all of it. That all of this misery, all of this affliction, all of this suffering is because we have rejected God. We have forfeited that blessed communion which he had made us to enjoy. Consider that this is the true state of mankind apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But then consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who ventured into the wilderness, the one who was impaled upon a thorn, thorns and thistles you shall bring forth, the one who became a curse to redeem us from the curse. Consider God's provision and consider all of the kindness that you've enjoyed up until this point, all the patience that you've enjoyed up until this point. What will it serve you on the day of death? The wealth, the health, the relationships, the success, it's all going to be taken in an instant. And guess what? On that day, it will rise up against you in testimony from the Lord saying, look at all the good I did you. Look at the ill that you sought to do me by defying constantly, by denying constantly, by treacherously withholding thanksgiving, which should have adorned the very breath that I supplied you. And guess what? Furthermore, I sent my servant to tell you about my son, my son who stood in the stead of sinners. My servant who said, come to him and he will give you rest. Come to him and he offers pardon and peace. And what did you do? You ignored it. 
you hardened your heart. On that day, all of that will rise up in testimony against you. Consider your helpless estate and then consider the help that Christ is to sinners in saving us from our helpless estate, in rescuing us from our plunge into destruction. Come to him. He will turn aside none. And for the church, we can consider what we have been spared and we can rejoice. Consider our former estate. Consider our estrangement. Consider how all of us had gone and wandered into destruction, variously adorning our lives. And then consider how Christ retrieved you. How Christ reached for you. How the gospel snatched you from your hell-bound race and placed you in God's presence like a tree that is now abiding. As we just sang, I will sing your praises, for I know that you have done this. We continue to reflect upon the reality of sin and death, which should have been ours, as we see it playing out everywhere around us. And indeed, even within us, as being placed in the Lord Jesus Christ has freed us from the terrible end of sin and death, but it has not freed us from the experience of sin and death. And so we can also reflect upon how the miseries of this life are intended to cultivate in us a sense of our absolute need for the Lord Jesus Christ to sustain for us life in the midst of of a little death. And how the ultimate testimony that the miseries of this life is to bear in our soul as those who have been born from above is what? To create yearning for our heavenly home. To create yearning for the day when the Lord returns and does away with sin and misery. All of our aches, be they physical or spiritual, all of our pains, all of our disappointments, all of our frustrations, all of it is a blatant reminder that this world is not our home. All of it is a pressing testimony that our hope must be tied elsewhere. And it is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father and says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And all those who love his coming, you can be confident that there is a crown everlasting and unfading stored up for you and all those who love the coming of the Son. Let's pray. Father, it is a weighty word. It is a hard word, but it is the truth of your word. May it have its good effect in our hearts. Father, if, if there is unbelief, drive it away. If there is the tendency to rest in the work of our hands, drive it away. If there is the looking unto things and people to satisfy as only you can, drive it away. And fix our gaze firmly upon our Lord, our Savior, 
the one who gives life, and that forevermore. For we ask in his name, amen.